All right, welcome back to a bonus episode of the Blasters and Blades podcast. So, hey, all you crazy sci-fi and fantasy fans, time for your daily dose of shenanigans over here at the Blasters and Blades podcast. Just three nerdy veterans geeking out over our science fiction passions and fantastical fantasies, a place where magic is king, the sky is the limit, and space is the place. So without further ado, let me tell you what we're doing right now. We're getting ready to uh, release some of the archive that we found from when we were the sci-fi shenanigans. Uh, we're going to get those up there for, for the posts that were brought down. We thought you might enjoy them. Um, and so without further ado, let us uh, let us roll that beautiful... Oh, wait, they're going to sue me. Play it. Hey, all you crazy sci-fi fans. Time for your daily dose of insanity over here at the Sci-Fi Shenanigans Podcast. Just three nerdy veterans geeking out over our science fiction passions. A place where the sky's the limit, space is a place, and nerds run the world. And without further ado... All right, welcome back to another episode of the Sci-Fi Shenanigans Podcast. Uh, for those of you who don't know because you live under a rock somewhere, the world has quarantined itself. They've stuck their head in the sand and trying to pretend things aren't the way they are. Uh, and that means a lot of cons got canceled. A lot of people can't do the social things. So we decided to have a con away from a con, and we're doing a panel on military science fiction with some of the best authors in the genre. So... Uh, let's let the guests introduce themselves in alphabetical order, and if they have relevant military experience, they can blather about it, and uh, and let's do this. So uh, we'll start with you, Scott Bartlett, since you're the first in alphabetical order. Who are you, and what do you write? Hey, it's me, Scott. I write Space Opera. Uh, first of all, I think there's a really cool idea to have like a digital conference. I love it. And uh, what you may recognize from me on Amazon is Supercarrier, Ixion Prophecies. Uh, that's book one in that. Mech Wars. Spacious is what I'm uh, what I'm pushing lately. That's about it. All right. So he said he writes space opera. He also writes space opera because he does write the military sci-fi, or we wouldn't have invited him. Not for this one, anyway. <laughs> right. Uh, I, probably, right. I should have said that up front. It, it's okay. It's okay. We can blame Canada. Excellent. Uh, I always do. Austin, I, <laughs> but you have maple syrup, so in the end, you win, right? It bounces out anyway. All right. What about you, Nick Cole? Who are you, and what do you write? My name is Nick, uh, full-time drinker, part-time lover. I write novels about lonely Marines and foxholes discovering other lonely Marines. No, I write the Galaxy's Edge series with Jason Anspach, and we just have a good old time playing with action figures in the dirt. I was in the Army. I served in a pretty hardcore infantry unit. I was amazed I was there every day that they would let someone like me associate with them. Outstanding. And if you didn't know, he single-handedly stormed Granada and Clint Eastwood stole his role. Uh, Heartbreak Ridge was really about Nick Cole. It's top secret. It was just recently declassified, so he can't say much yet, but but it's a true story. Yeah, I always called Heartbreak Ridge the fourth lap around the PT track. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> All right, what about you, Brian Mansour? Who are you and what do you write? All right, I'm Brian, and I write uh, Mill Science Fiction, and I've got uh, two books. My first one came out a year ago this month, and the second one is at Audible right now being recorded. Uh, should be uh, put out there. It'll be, of course, according to whenever Audible feels like it, but we expect here somewhere within the next couple of months uh, 
as always is, is with everything with COVID, it's all subject to change. Uh, working on the third one. And, uh, uh, yeah, it's uh, a little bit of a hard twist to the mill sci-fi. I strive for that. And uh, we'll go on to the next person. Hey, Walt, do you ever notice it's always the officers in the Army that want to make things harder? <laughs> yeah, well, that's why us good NCOs were uh, really good at putting blinders on them and directing them away from traffic. So, so Brian, you, did, you didn't tell your relevant military experience if you wanted to, to give that yeah. a little bit of a rundown. I'm working, of course, off of uh, uh, perpetual sleep deprivation and uh, oversized mugs of coffee to keep me going. Uh, I am an Army captain. I'm Medical Service Corps, and uh, presently I'm in uh, pre-deployment for... Uh, with a, an infantry battalion. So uh, looking forward to good times. Uh, if that happens, uh, going to be uh, taking a medical platoon uh, because uh, they're like, hey, we need a medical service corps guy to do this. Hey, that guy's got a, at least one bar on his chest. Oh, he's got two. Good. He'll go. And um, uh, in addition to that, I also uh, work at a Fortune 500 company. Uh, just got promoted to an assistant vice president there, which is pretty cool. Uh, so all these uh, wonderful bits of uh, life experience, uh, 44 years worth. And the fact, uh, that I'm married, uh, all ties in Oh, with, with a, a kid, uh, I draw on all that wonderful experience and hopefully compose something that uh, people find worth reading. So Brian, what was scarier, the war zone or your angry wife? Oh, angry wife. What are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> all right. What about this you, Rick Partlow? Who are you? <laughs> Who are you? What did you write? And, and what uh, brands did you serve with? I'm Rick Partlow. I write military science fiction and space opera. I've written 36 books in 10 series, including Glory Boy, the Recon series, and Wholesale Slaughter series. And I have short stories and at least a dozen anthologies. I, uh, I was in the U.S. Army Infantry 25th Infantry Division over in Hawaii. And I was a platoon leader. And it was a lot of fun. Uh, Flying in the helicopters, you know, march, marching up and down the mountains. The politics wasn't that fun, but that's the army. Absolutely. And last but not least in our hearts, Mr. Walt Robillard. And we're going to pronounce your name differently every time just to make you happy. But, but uh, that's who are because you? I enjoy it that way. That's right. Who, who are you? What did you write? And who did you serve with? Um, uh, yeah. So I uh, used to drink coffee in the army, and now I drink coffee as a civilian. And because I don't have uh, I don't have a firearm in my hand uh, all the time. Uh, that leaves me uh, some a minute or two to uh, pretend to be a writer. Uh, so far, the only stuff that uh, you can find of mine is either in role playing game format uh, through my company Hazard Studios or uh, in the pages of uh, various anthologies uh, uh, in and around the digital writing space. Uh, but hopefully, that will change soon, uh, and we'll see what happens. Outstanding. So now we are get to define our terms. So what is military science fiction? And again, in alphabetical order, Mr. Scott Bartlett. So for me, it's uh, anything that features a heavy military element, you know, a chain of command, uh, a commander of some sort. I, for me, I tend to focus on uh, the, the commander of the unit, specifically the captain of the warship. My stuff tends to be based around uh, usually like a single warship operating together to, to complete a mission. Um, yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's about it. So 
What about you, Mr. Nick Cole, the one, the only? What is military science fiction? Military science fiction is going to take any kind of military concept, military unit, military theme, and then apply it to the world of science fiction. So basically, it's like going on FTX on acid. That's the best way to describe it. (laughs) Outstanding. And uh, next, we have Mr. Brian Mansour. So I, I think of military science fiction stories as those that whose principal characters and situations are rooted in a military setting concerning military matters generally include combat and, in my experience, tend to be more plot-driven than character-driven. Okay. Rick, can you follow that up? Uh, well, I, in my opinion, military science fiction is built around military conflict of some kind. Necessarily, not necessarily the future, just involving higher tech than we currently have um, or science fiction situations, but it's still not necessarily a war, but some sort of military conflict. You could, you could write military science fiction with just, you know, some small unit out there doing reconnaissance, but it's got to involve the military, the command structure and some kind of conflict. And Walt being the good NCO you are, can you uh, tell them how they were wrong? (laughs) <laughs> I, i'm not the only i'm not the only nco on this one other than you am i no nick was enlisted before he was an officer so he can he can claim that credit too he can tell himself how wrong he was <laughs> um uh i i think uh these guys did uh, a very admirable job of defining the the genre i think um uh, instead i'd go the other way and say uh, the what military science fiction isn't. And I think that just because it has a military in it or a military objective, I don't think that necessarily makes it military science fiction. I think all of the, the points that these guys hit are, are uh, readily necessary uh, for it to fit in that genre, because unless you have uh, a military, a military objective with a command structure and uh, some sort of uh, overarching element that they're, that, uh, a unit as a whole is trying to achieve. I think you're, those who will read it will not get that that sense of um, that sense of camaraderie and esprit de corps and many of the things that make military science fiction interesting to listen to or, or read. Outstanding. And now, just for a, a grounding rod, we have the fine folks at Wikipedia University, who we know are never wrong. Uh, who have defined uh, military science fiction. So here's what they had to say. Military science fiction is a subgenre of science fiction that features the use of science fiction technology, mainly weapons, for military purposes and usually principal characters that are members of military organizations involved in military activity, usually during a war, occurring sometimes in outer space or on different planet or planets. It exists in literature, comics, films, and video games. They go on to repeat the same thing over and over for multiple paragraphs. Uh, And they could really, really use a a decent copy editor, but that is what Wikipedia University has to say. And as we established earlier, they're never wrong. So does anybody feel like they need to change their answer? No, I'm sticking with FTX on acid. (laughs) (laughs) Yes! (laughs) Outstanding. So, so Nick, uh, in your spare time, because we know you have lots of it, what you need to do is reach out to the professors at uh, the fine folks at Wiki University and see if you can get on staff and teach them how to do it right. All right, yeah, so that's your like we just we, we 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 like the cool thing that we all have um, as military authors 
people who know it's like you, all of us have had that experience watching like sort of like regular tv and film and then here comes military guy and he's wearing his cap all wrong and he's got his finger on the trigger and he does about 75 things wrong for us before he ever opens his mouth to talk and give like completely a dialogue and, and say roger and copy that and you know uh all these kinds of terrible things um or we just keep copy the ourselves and we let all the sort of untrained blossom within wikipedia and make all the mistakes and then we get all like the old guy veterans and new guy veterans and they're like man you guys are the source of all truth so i think denial of service and psyop is the way to go <laughs> uh, diabolical i approve and then with that we will move on because nobody could possibly top that level of evilness so the definition mentions that there is a backdrop of war for these stories. So can you have a military science fiction without the war component, Scott? Uh, not so far in any of my books. Uh, I think I guess if you don't have the warfare component, you don't have like a war that's currently going on. There are a lot of stories that focus on training. So you could have the the journey of a of a trainee becoming becoming worthy of being a soldier. I've also made a note to self not to use Wikipedia as a source going forward. Because <laughs> that's the little things in life Nick Cole can teach you. Definitely. All right. What about you, Nick? Can you have a military science fiction story without the war component? You know, I don't want to be clever or arch because I am. Um, I do want to say that there's really no such thing as peace and you're never in peacetime. Those are illusions created by politicians or hippies. You're always in a state of war, always. Whether you like it or not, you're at war with somebody or you know your personal addiction or whatever. Um, and we know from being in the military, even when you're, you're not at war, you're training as though you would fight. So you're always in a state of war. But going back to the first part of the answer, I don't want to be clever or arch. And I want to say, you know, just from a marketing standpoint, what I have found is if you're going to serve the meal and we're serving a hamburger here with French fries, um, you you really want to just get it. You don't want to be clever. You want to like if someone if someone is interested in reading a space marine military science fiction novel, you really want to serve that to them. You don't want them suddenly get, you know, getting this whole like uh you know, the, 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 the battle of the paperwork in the S1, you know, or that time I was on leave with my buddies. They're probably signing up for your book because they want to get into some conflict. And I would say you probably, like, if you're going to do a series, you probably want to be in on that in the first book, let alone the first sentence in the first chapter. You want to stuff war, war, war down their throat. Um, believe me, it's a mistake I've made twice in two series of, of stepping back from the war for a moment to kind of give people another perspective. And it didn't like, it took, it took a while to overcome those objections for people. And as I get older now and wiser, hopefully more mature about my writing, I realize it's very important to obey the initial contract. So if we're going to tell military science fiction, it's really war fiction and there really should actually be a war. Outstanding. Brian. I, I would agree with Nick. Uh, and if you don't have a um, battle conflict of some sorts, you have Star Trek, the motion picture, the original one where you have all the military structure, where you have this, the huge freaking battleship in space, but you're not fighting somebody really. Uh, it, and, and that's 
it just doesn't doesn't quite do it. Yeah, they had some photons going around, but that didn't count. Um, you can have a military story without actual combat, but as uh, um, I think it was Scott who said, you're you're left with training, police actions, perhaps maybe some special ops things. But even then, combat's gonna have to be in there somewhere. I mean, you're you're dealing with a genre that is kind of the embodiment of Chekhov's gun. You better shoot something before the end of the book, and quite frankly, you should probably shoot it a lot. Outstanding. What about you, Rick? Well, since my last name starts with a P, all the good answers have been taken. Uh (laughs) But yeah, I agree with them that uh, it's better you're if you're giving somebody military science fiction, give them a war because most of them don't want to read about somebody in training the whole book. You know, even if it's a low low intensity conflict, you know, covert operatives somewhere dealing with terrorists, but it's a war. I mean, you can call it another term, but you're fighting a war. Fair enough. And Walt? Yeah, I'm just going to I'm going to hop on Rick's uh, Rick's wagon for a minute uh, and shout like I have a podium. Uh, The uh, the whole thing about low intensity conflict is a lot of times you're not going to read a whole lot about it until many decades later when these guys are, are free from um, operational security to talk about the stuff. Um, uh, the, the whole drug wars in the nineties um, there are legions of uh, guys who were on ODAs and, and uh, special teams that went down to central and South America and um, ruined entire grid squares of landscape. Uh, to keep drugs from spilling over borders. So um, you can still have, uh, you can you might not have um, a war that makes the news, but that doesn't mean that nobody's fighting. All right. That's a, that's a good answer and a fair point. And um, so that we shouldn't mention the uh, that you were with Nicole when, when they star, stole, stormed Heartbreak Ridge. Got it. NDAs and such. Yes. So... Um, all right. So part of what defines a genre are the common tropes. Are there any that you must have uh, in a story to be classified as military science fiction? And since the alphabet's a thing, we're going to go in reverse order. And Walt, you get to be first. Oh, damn. Now I can't do my con- my counter uh, <laughs> argument. <laughs> that Now, the question is, that has to be in the genre? Correct. What do you feel like is the tropes that have to be in the genre to be MILSF? Um, I think uh, command structure without it being basic training, because I think that's really where um, you can tell if somebody um, has read a Wikipedia article and and then watched a couple of movies. Um, I can't tell how many times um, I've walked up to a a lieutenant and said, hey, sir, we got this thing going on. Is this cool if this rolls? You know, versus, sir, I am reporting as ordered, sir, I would like to ask your permission to ask a question about something that I need a question answer for, sir. And it's like, dude, stop watching, stop watching the CW's attempt at, at trying to create military fiction. It's not it's not working for anybody. So I think you have to have in military science fiction a realistic command structure with real realistic interactions. Otherwise, I think it breaks down into just um uh, you know, that movie that you, you saw on like 2B TV with that had no um, content editor. OK, so the fact that he was the commanding officer of the ROTC detachment uh, in college does not impress you then? No, definitely not. 
and that JROTC stuff doesn't work for me either. <laughs> All right. What about you, Rick? What uh, common tropes have to be in there for it to be mill sci-fi? Uh, I think the tropes depend on what sort of mill sci-fi you're writing or reading. Uh, because in my experience, like space fleet mill sci-fi is totally different than space marine mill sci-fi as far as tropes go. But depending on what you're, what you're writing, if you're writing space fleet, there's got to be some sort of battle that is analogous to a an old time uh, sail battle, you know, or, or or steam battle. Because you you can dress it up with high tech and make excuses for why it's this way, but if there's not that battle, then people are going to feel cheated. When it's space marines, you can't have somebody fly a drone into a target as the climax of the novel. You've got to have guys down and dirty in the mud fighting themselves in person. I think those are tropes that are not going to go away that nobody wants to read about some guy, you know, a million miles away guiding a, an armed drone in. I think that those tropes are, are very important to the genre. All right. What about you, Brian? I thought we were going in reverse order here. How come I'm still in the middle? <laughs> that is the reverse. Uh, the officer to mess it up. Hey, I'm, I'm an officer. Um, <laughs> I actually had to go on to uh, TV tropes uh, just to to get a good look at that. <laughs> uh, it yeah, building off of what Rick said, there's it's going to be very situation dependent. There's a lot. There are a lot of tropes out there, and I don't think that any one story versus another is really going to have. Uh, even a small selection of the same, except for perhaps a couple of basics like what we've been talking about. There, there's got to be that command structure uh, trope going in there. You've got to have uh, somebody better have a rifle of some kind. Um, and if you've got a, a space thing, then you've either got to have a fighter or you've got to have a battle star somewhere in there. Um, there was, a, I think, a second part to that uh question uh which, which branch of service do you think future space militaries will be based on or is that coming up later that, that's, that's the next question okay so um another another thing that uh uh rick said which is very important is it, you it, it's got to be a human story um it, as he said nobody really wants to see somebody fly a bomb into uh uh something else by drone you can get away with it here and there if the stakes are high enough but it certainly should not be your um main serving so you guys are trying to make me hungry all right nick <laughs> what uh what does it have to have besides hamburgers to be uh trope wise to be milla sci-fi i think you have to have space rip it i think you have to have <laughs> that's brilliant I think you have to have space off-post bad car dealers that put you in on a used Trans Am because you just because you wanted to get your NCO stripes. A used space Trans Am. You have to have a guy in the platoon who has three DUIs and has married two strippers in six months. Um, you know, you you've got to have. What I'm trying to say in all that is, you like if you really want to write the military, everything everybody's saying is valuable. But you have to understand that 90% of the military is that yep. bullshit. Like, not not the stupid bullshit of getting, you know, 
vaccinations and drawing fifty and and you know going to the range and all that kind of stuff. But th- there's there's just an amount of bullshit that goes with being a soldier. That's like later in life you look back at how much fun it was and how much is free to court. And you've got to salt that stuff in while you know are you know trying to use the death beam on the the marine outposts and the marines can't get an airstrike i think another thing that you have to have is the danger in any kind of science fiction writing is writing our our perfect fantasy of how an operation should go you know because all of us are sort of armchair generals Mm -hmm. and i think what you have to do is you really have to do you have to sit down and make your plan like you're going to get away with it and you know really put some voodoo into it get all, you know, uh, uh, Joker from Batman, that meme and all that kind of stuff. But then turn around and wipe out your own plan. And that's the story you really want to tell. You really want to tell, like, how your guys overcome adversity when the plan goes to shit and how people improvise and adapt, how that PFC suddenly rises to the, 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 um, the, the, the forefront how the you know the platoon leader isn't such a bad person maybe he's maybe he's a guy with some skills or just kill all your officers right off the bat because most likely that's how you're going to sell the most books because enlisted guys <laughs> read about officers being Achilles you know so all that shit oh my god that's brilliant I so want a space trans am now as opposed to kill your darlings, it's kill your officers. Golly. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Nick. <laughs> My pleasure. Remember, I straddle the fence on both sides. I, I know. <laughs> and that, that's so hot. <laughs> oh, gosh. Somebody give him a donut. <laughs> I, I think we broke JR. <laughs> <laughs> All right. uh, that's what happens when you forget to unmute. I was laughing so hard. Sorry. Uh, so you have to remember, Nick. The important part is the uh, problem. I don't get that option. <laughs> so you have to remember the the steal of a deal at only sixty percent interest for your space trans am. Yeah. Because and it's got to be a used uh, retired sergeant major that runs the uh, the shop. Because <clears throat> that's how it always is. But. Uh, and some Scott, private has, the, private has to come to his platoon leader and uh, and ask why his furniture is being repossessed. <laughs> so Scott, you you get the unenviable job of topping that. So uh, <laughs> yeah, right now I'm realizing. Right now I'm realizing. If you, if you if you write a novel with all that stuff in it, you would sell like no tomorrow. <laughs> Just you know, do you know, kind of, you know, but but put it like in the there's a war. But if you really wanted to write an officer story, the officers will tell you this. If you really wanted to write an officer story, have that guy dealing with all that shit. That is hilarious. <laughs> all right, Scott, you, you got to try. You got you to say something. So what, uh, <laughs> what, what tropes do you have to have for it to be military science fiction? I was going to say, right now I'm realizing how spoiled I've been answering first. <laughs> <laughs> this is true. I don't know how I'm going to top those answers, but uh, I'm going to build on what Brian was saying, which is, uh, and what Walt was saying, which I think there are, you know, basic tropes that you have to have in there, like the the chain of command and they need to be using weapons. You know, you need to have some pew pew in there. But um, I, I also don't think there are any 
beyond that, I don't think there are, are any like mandatory tropes that must be in there. I think there's probably some magic threshold where you're interacting with the tropes enough that it's recognizable as military sci-fi and satisfying the readers of the genre. Don't ask me what that threshold is. But that's what is that theory. threshold? That's 2.5. <laughs> It's 42. Uh, (laughs) So one of the obvious tropes is uh, military, the military itself. So which branch of service do you think future space militaries will be based on? You know, the the standard right now is the Navy with a Marine Corps as all other ground forces. But now that the Space Force is a thing, uh, which sort of molded itself off the uh, the Air Force and the Army is out there, how do you think future space militaries will be modeled uh, as far as culture, et cetera? And uh, since you made that joke, Brian, in the middle, gets to go first. Hey, Army. <laughs> Definitely going to be the Army and the Navy. <clears throat> Just kidding, of course. Um, it, it is, and even in my own books, it's Marines and Navy. Um, if, if we get that far in real life, uh, I expect it's going to be something new forged from the old because technology and situations are, are always going to change it. It's going to be something that's going to be a blend of it all uh they'll they'll probably call it something like space force uh but there's always going to be that division of labor between the guys who are running the ships and the guys who are out there with the uh the ground pounding feet uh unfortunately or fortunately uh, from a storytelling perspective uh there will never be a replacement for boots in the mud uh, or on the deck plate, uh, there, there will certainly be a lot of uh, weapons augmentation and drones and things like that. But artificial intelligences, weapon systems, they'll all continue to sh- reshape the battle space. Okay. Speaking of artificial intelligence, we have next but not least, uh, Mr. Rick Bartlow. I think it depends on a on one thing on how how far in the future it is. Because I'm writing a, I'm writing something now that's kind of like near future where we get into space because of aliens and because it's near future, we have the space force mm-hmm. and, and also it ends up being uh, the Rangers who get out there as the ground force. And the main character ever is a Marine. So he's kind of like, it should be the Navy and the Marines. But most of my stuff that's, that's farther in the future, I have like the equivalent of the Navy. I call it, I call it fleet, which is, you know, it's, it's, it's fleet to me. sounds more uh, less watery than Navy. So I, I threw that in, in, in the Marines. And it seems like that's a trope that's going to stay pretty fixed in, uh, in military sci-fi is, is some sort of Navy and the Marines are going to be the ground forces. But I think if, if we're talking near future, Space Force would be it. All right, Walt. Uh, if it's us going out into the black and, and, and doing military stuff, um, I think uh, you're going to have nothing out there without uh, our fine folks of uh, green bean coffee that we see on every single fob combat outpost. <laughs> I think I think that the uh, the coffee uh, the coffee caterer model will probably infect the military, and you know you'll have space baristas and all sorts of craziness at uh, every bazaar on every fob in the galaxy. So there's my take. So. <clears throat> You bomb the White House, Matt, we, we might get over it. You bomb our green bean coffee, man. That's how you get another crusade. You, you, you ain't lying, because let me tell you, you come off a 12-hour patrol, you need a little something. That green beans was shut down. There was, oh, hell to pay. 
they got me through the deployment because uh, it was green bean or uh, MRE instant coffee under the gums. It was oh, ugh, God. pretty. Oh, God, that was so disgusting. <laughs> it was, but it kept you awake. Caffeine straight to the bloodstream. Oh, uh, I, I, I still can't it. look at instant coffee the same way again. But uh, I am so a coffee terrible. connoisseur much the same way. Much the same way Nick Cole is a donut connoisseur. So, but, uh, so what about you, Scott? Um, what's future military is it going to be based on? And given that you're Canadian and they don't have a military, I know your perspective could be a little <laughs> bit skewed, but you do have the maple syrup force. So, so what, what you got? No, that means I have no bias whatsoever. This is true. Yeah. Uh, so I can just look at it totally objectively. Also, because I wasn't in the military, so I have no, no, Branch preference, but no, I'm just trying to scrounge what credibility I can. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I definitely agree. Near term, it definitely seems like Space Force, which is growing out of the Air Force, is it. I was actually thinking about this today. Long term, I think it's probably going to depend on what type of vehicle we see majorly in use in, in space warfare. It's impossible to predict that, of course, but. Uh, I don't know. You know, if you're looking at distant future, hundreds of thousand years down the road, um, if space is just the naturally the new theater of, of operations and that's where we're just used to living and doing business, then again, it comes back to what the vehicle is. If we're going to see these big, you know, Battlestar Galactica style ships with a, with a huge crew, then probably the Navy makes sense because you know, if we're seeing bridges like Star Trek and the ground forces are Marines, that, that seems like a natural fit to me, like like I think Rick said. But if we're going to see smaller craft piloted by like a handful or maybe just one or maybe no people, which uh, could be the case as AI ramps up, then maybe it will continue to resemble the Air Force a little more. <clears throat> but when are we going to get the Space Coast Guard? No, uh, 2039. So I'm All right, outstanding. I will say, dear listener, because he was talking about his credibility or lack thereof, is when I read his Mech War series, Scott Bartlett, I actually reached out because I wanted to know which Canadian military unit he served with because I thought he had to have. And, and while he did mix the Navy and the, and the Army ranks around uh, as an artistic choice, it, it just read too true for me not to have thought he served. So, so don't listen to him when he bashes himself. He, he knows things. So, <laughs> Thank you. I know at least two things. Yeah, you know at least two things. And you know when the Space Coast Guard will, will become a thing. So Nick That's Cole, one of the two, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Nick Cole, what you got? Uh, good. You guys read me good? Good? No, no static? No interference? You're, you're, <laughs> what? Five by, you're five by five. Wait. <laughs> <laughs> Um, here's how I think it's going to go. All that stuff is interesting, but it's still sort of like human centric, you know, geocentric thinking. What I think is going to happen is the only way for us to kind of get into the stars. And I think it's completely probable is that we get some kind of open source faster than light travel device or, you know, some sort of viable light hugger type ship that can get us out there. The problem is, is you don't really, as Elon Musk is proving, you don't really need nations to do this anymore. So I think what we're going to actually see in, uh, you know, uh, the rhyme, let's, you know, I don't know. 
what we're going to see in, in, in the militaries of the future is I think we're going to see more of a trend towards PMCs, private military contractors, private military corporations, however you want to say that. But I think it's going to be much different than, you know, band of mercenaries or whatever. I think it's, it's going to be very much organized along a sort of military corporate military heavy kind of thing, maybe an indentured servant kind of thing, maybe a sort of corporate bonus structure, but you're going to see, I think like colleges begin to teach military skill sets um, with some of the best trainers in the world for people who want to go this route. We sort of saw this pop up uh, in the last 20 years and it actually turned out to be quite effective. So as, as sort of nations realize, you know, the human cost uh, is huge. You got to have a VA. You got to pay life insurance. You got to do all these things. Why don't we build drones and we'll handle things with drones? As someone on the call said, you still got to have it. We all know you still got to have boots on the ground. So I think we're going to see PMCs. And then you got to think about it this way: as soon as some sort of some sort of travel pipe system is invented, every corporation is immediately going to take off for all points on the compass. So it's not going to be a national thing. You're literally going to have Coca-Cola try to go take a star system and they're going to go need their own military. And then they're going to run into some frog people. And then they're going to be war crimes. There's going to be death in the streets. Coca-Cola is to blame, but you know, you're going to have, you're going to have people killing in the name of Coca-Cola and those people won't mind. And they'll still bitch about all the same shit. So uh, <laughs> when are you going to start your own PMC, the Coles Cavaliers? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I actually uh, am working on a, a new um, science fiction series that I sold to another company, and it, it basically is going down down this route and kind of exploring it. But I just um, I, I think that sort of national organized militaries are most likely for a very short period of human expansion going to be not viable because when you think about how much territory out there there is to cover we actually don't have the gene pool the baby making pool to cover that right now one of the dangers that humanity will actually face going out into the stars is zero viability um you're going to have large groups of people go off and die on a planet and they're going to get taken out of the ability to make 7 billion more people. So some bad accidents out there in the stars, and you could get down to a very low number of human beings mating. So what they're going to try to do is, is get by with super overpowered PMCs, uh, kind of like guys who will solve an insurgent problem, uh, a sniper insurgent problem with a nuke. All right. That's a good answer. And, um, how important is it to stay on point when uh, talking about military tactics, rank structures, and technology in the genre of military science fiction? How far can you stray from today's established norms and still meet reader expectations? Uh, Nick, you get to go first this time. Oh, it's not important at all. You can just make stuff up. Um, well, no, I'm just joking. No, I mean, you should learn some basic tactics and not Sun Tzu's Art of War. That's crap. Um, but you should... You should <laughs> You know, you should study. I mean, you should just study great battles and great. Someone said that earlier. I mean, like, there's really nothing new in war. A lot of the times it's, you know, if you if you study the basic, you know, manual of infantry and you learn attack on a fixed position and you le learn movement to contact and you learn raid and all those kinds of things, you can probably with any kind of, you know, uh, uh, fantastical units that you're designing, you can usually design most operations around that stuff. 
you should learn uh, calm, but I, I find sometimes like proper calm stuff, but I, I think like sometimes that gets in the way. And again, the whole thing that I would say about this is like one of the problems that we all have is we're trying to work from the familiar to the fantastical. And there's nothing wrong with going ahead and inventing a whole new way of fighting and thinking, um, which I think is important to do. The danger of like maybe looking too too backwards into the history is suddenly you're fighting the Battle of Austerlitz with your 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 aliens all lining up in fixed rows and your space rangers kind of doing the same thing and you know suddenly you're trying to justify a cavalry charge and you know broadside artillery. I mean, these are all mistakes I've made. So you know I don't want you to make them, but uh, I think I think a minimum of tactics. I think. Here's the one thing I really think you should get solid on for anybody who's writing is you should get really solid on weapon porn because the guys who read um, this fiction are generally people who enjoy weapons and building their own upper and lowers and, you know, loading their own ammo. And um, when you talk to most of these guys, like, I mean, uh, something we did in Galaxy's Edge is we went to blasters and things like that. If I was gonna, if I was going to redo Galaxy's Edge, I might get away from blasters. I might really stay with chemical projectiles because I think that's actually a weapon system that's going to stay forever. I don't think we'll move to energy weapons. So weapon porn and getting really excited, exciting and creative with that is kind of fun. What is this heresy you speak of? Blasters or where is that? (laughs) (laughs) Brian, you you have to save him from himself. You need to go next. <laughs> I'm totally it is in his corner on this one. I've I've uh, used uh, um, hard projectiles in uh, my books for a good reason, and that is is that it is very 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 difficult to uh, at least with our current technology and even foreseeable technology to come up with a hand laser system that is going to outperform a. Um, uh, you know, just a good old slug thrower. Now, there are some engineers out there, of course, that will disagree with me. Uh, but uh, until you show me the money, I'm, I'm not going to buy it uh, just in terms of sustainability and versatility and reliability. A good slug thrower is uh, going to come out on top for most situations than a laser system. People don't understand how most folks don't understand how hard it is to make that work and how the physics behave uh, with uh, with something as simple as a, a hand laser, and a blaster is is essentially a, a a fantasy weapon that that sort of thing doesn't really exist like what you see in Star Wars, uh, and is it's like a slow motion uh, uh, tracer round going everywhere. But the original question was uh, how how important it is it to stay on point with military ranking tactics and technology? Um, <clears throat> It's you're, you're, of course, going to tailor it to what the needs of your storytelling are. You want to keep a, at least a veneer of believability, something relatable. So if you don't have some sort of a military structure there, you're going to lose something that is core to military science fiction. Uh, it's a good way in some ways to have uh, an identical uh, rank structure to what we have in the U.S. today, if that's your or the U.K., if if that's your uh, core reader audience, you don't have to do that. And in fact, in, realistically, that's not going to be what it's going to always be. The rank structure we got nowadays is garbage. It, it makes no sense. Half of what we've got and how we've named it, and and uh, 
it gets darn confusing. But it's not going to go away anytime soon because it's the military and militaries thrive on tradition. Um, but at the same time, things like technology, those are going to change dramatically as uh, time goes on. And I know that that sounds really weird to hear coming from somebody in the military who, you know, it, it takes a long time for anything to change in the military technology wise, unless you're in the middle of a war. And even then. So well, I'll go with that. All right, Rick. Um, first off, I want to say that if a book is good enough and you can capture people's imaginations well enough, you can pretty much get away with anything. But I can tell you from experience that if you deviate from current practices or rank structures, even slightly, you're going to get a whole bunch of people nitpicking you about it. Mm-hmm. Even if you explain in the book why it's different, you will get people saying, that's not how it is now. I guess this book takes place 300 years from now. Things are different. But as far as, as, far as the technology goes, I, I don't like to go – too far off into the into the brush about things like um, autonomous drones, uh, you know, things that remove the human element from it. You know, it because I, I like to try to come up with reasons why like, they won't work in this war. Like the enemy is just too good at jamming for us to use remotely piloted drones, and we don't trust autonomous drones because of their hacking or some reason. But I think that you want to keep you want to keep the technology somewhat close to what we have now so people can identify with the actual combat. So you don't want to, you don't want to have something where you, you know, you, you can just push a button and a black hole appears in the enemy base because that's too impersonal and nobody reads military science fiction for impersonal combat. As far as the, the whole deal with the chemical propellant slug shooters versus energy weapons. I think nobody's dealing with uh, electromagnetic propelled slug shooters, which I think are going to be the next thing to replace chemical slug shooters before anybody thinks of having an energy weapon. You're talking about like a a Gauss rifle? Yes, exactly. Or even even if you have a a weapon that uses um, a gunpowder as the propellant and has an electromagnetically uh, levitated barrel, just to increase the muzzle velocity, something like that is going to come up at some point once the uh, once we get room temperature superconductors and reliable power sources. All right, give me a minute, audience. I need I need to go to my bunk for a second. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Walt. Um, I, so, I'm just gonna uh, go ahead. I was going to repeat the question for you if you needed. Nope, I'm good. Um, I, I think that uh, that everybody pretty much hit the, the nail on the head with that. Um, uh, all this technology and rank structure and fanta- and you know fantastic military action is is what brings people to the table. But without the human element to drive it, it it's like it's like putting the key in a car, putting a brick on the accelerator, and then just watching what happens. You, you only get so much of that before it eventually hits a wall and, and nobody wants to watch anymore or read anymore. Uh, you need that human element or, or you know, some element of, of people dealing with the situation and its aftermath to drive all these fantastic situations uh, where Pew Pew is king. And uh, if, you, if you take that out, um, I mean, you can have drones interacting with people you can have uh drones interacting with you know different aliens or whatever but 
I mean, if you're just dealing with the technology and not um, some sort of human element, then uh, you're, you're going to lose your audience pretty quick because, I mean, binary code is so fascinating. I just I can't imagine anybody just not going page after page of zero one zero one zero one. So there's my take. <laughs> Outstanding. And uh, last but not least, Mr. Scott Bartlett. Yeah, like we've talked about before, actual combat, what it's actually going to look like in the far future is probably, A, impossible to predict, and B, radically different than anything we see today. It also may not make for good military science fiction stories. So in, t- in terms of you know actual, actually serving military sci-fi readers and giving them what they want, uh, I'm on, I'm on board with what Rick was saying. We're probably better served as authors to to stick fairly closely to, to current doctrine and, and ranking structures and so on. At least if my one-star reviews are any judge or any indication. <laughs> but um, in terms of like where I like to jump off from from the way things are done currently is the technology. For example, I I recently incorporated missiles with laser shooting warheads into one of my series, and apparently I still haven't jumped the shark. So this is good. Uh, I used those quite a while ago. They're cool. Oh, nice. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not the only one. All right. So you're you're not the early adopter you thought you were, but you're still uh, you're still in the race. So I'm a little, I'm a little relieved, good. honestly. <laughs> speaking um, speaking of in, in my novel Space Piss Test um, when I tried to use <laughs> shot lasers that were missiles I literally ironically jumped the shark and it was a, it was, it was a more speed capable shark that jumped so it, it was you know what it was too much of an esoteric novel and I really should have been stuck with the Space Piss test concept about a about a space marine unit having to basically get up at four o'clock in the morning and drug test because someone got a DUI that weekend. Oh and <laughs> so exactly how many times did you make PFC before you became an officer? Quite quite <laughs> you were that good at it, okay. I'm sure nobody called him yo yo. <laughs> uh, my, my specialist in corporal stripes were velcroed once um, speaking of tactics how creative should you be with story uh, in the stories with tactics to for military science fiction um, should the story stick with the current formations as we know them now or do you make up new ones um, to uh, force the reader to see technology has changed things and Walt you get to go first this time Oh, damn. Where's my mute button? Um, the uh, uh, <laughs> uh, one of the one of the, the, the perks of, uh, you know, uh, having played with uh, a lot of alphabet soup people, um, uh, all those funny acronymed uh, organizations is you really know how to worm your way into people's inner circles. Um, just because I love the beta read. I love getting uh, something before it's finished and kind of checking things out. And I might uh, have or might not have uh, at least several manuscripts uh, floating around uh, on my Kindle or on my phone or whatever from many people on this panel. And, and I consider myself very, very lucky and rich to have read these, these properties. Um, but uh, the amount of ways that warfare can change in the future due to 
um, not only uh, the technology, but also the environments that we're fighting in is, is just phenomenal. And to stick to um, uh, an established doctrine in order to uh, in order to fight those might be counterproductive. Um, uh, like, uh, for example, there was um, uh, in a recent manuscript I was reading, um, a, a modern military weapon was used side by side with a fantastical one to very dramatic and, and incredible results. Uh, so I think that in the future coming up, um, uh, just having like the standard, uh, like Nick was talking about, uh, react to contact, move into contact, um, L-shaped ambush, um, you know, pincer movements, all, all those things are, are tried and true because they have worked over hundreds of years in a multitude of conflicts. But at the same time, you have to understand, too, what if you have to fight in zero gravity on a ship? You know, what if you have to um, what if you have to take a satellite? Um, a, an extra orbital uh, walk where you have to take a satellite. Um, how are weapons going to be modified to function in zero gravity uh, in the void of space without something to activate a chemical propellant? You know, so I mean, you you, you get all these questions that 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 authors are now using to uh, weave these amazing tales. And uh, I got to tell you, I, I I am a very rich man for everything I've read over the last year. Okay. Scott Bartlett, you get to go next. So, yeah, like I said, I typically, I mean, I deviate a little bit from modern doctrine, but I mostly stick to that, mostly because that's what most of my research material is. And so I like to creatively riff on that. But mostly the, the battles that I'm writing are essentially naval battles. I mean, they're spaceships duking it out. Uh, I don't go with the, the ship of the line format where both fleets just line up and hammer away at each other. But uh, within that space, I think, like Walt said, it's important to think about the realities of fighting in 3D, which is a major difference between that and uh, naval battles now. Other than that, I just kind of do what makes sense. The tactics do feature pretty largely in my books. Like I'd say it's probably what I think most about when I'm plotting out my books and my battles. So I'd rate them as fairly important. And and there's my answer. Okay, Nick. Um, okay, first off, let me preface it this way. As a lifetime member of the E4 Mafia with venerable status, I'm going to... <laughs> this is my opinion. Um, you know, we're always going to have, like, social media and journalists as part of warfare now. So what I think we should do is we should change our... We should keep the tactics, but we should give them new names. So that when the reporters like or, or, you know, specialist dumb fuck tells his girlfriend and the enemy finds out what we're doing, we're not doing uh, an L-shaped amb- ambush or a pincher move or anything like that. We're doing the gang rape or the sodomizer or the one where we go AIDS at them. Like, it's really kind of a branding thing. That's how I would look at our operations now. We should come up with really scary titles that scare the shit out of the enemy. And they're like, oh, my gosh. CNN is reporting that they're going to use the sodomizer on us. And then, you know. (laughs) And Nick just added the content warning to this episode. (laughs) (laughs) Nobody mentioned the shocker yet. I think we're good. (laughs) Uh, Rick, you get to be next. How do you follow that? I don't know if I can. Um, (laughs) I think that uh, sticking with current naming conventions for formations is okay just to keep people in, you know, 
familiar with it involved, but you have to take into account new technology. Like, for instance, uh, for ground forces, you know, everybody knows about cover and concealment who's been in the military. Well, cover is not going to be cover if you're there's a guy shooting a 4,000 meter per second tungsten slug from a Gauss rifle at you. It can blow right through it. Or if they have an overhead bursting charge that detonates on a sensor. So, you know, things are going to have to change. And space tactics, just being in 3D, you're going to make them different than what we do now in any situation. Um, I, I like to use, like, for space battles, globular formations, because I feel like that's the, the simplest thing people can understand that would work in a three-dimensional battle space. But, you know, you have to you have to explain this kind of thing to the reader. If you're going to go with something different, you have to make sure you take the time to let them know what it looks like so they can envision it instead of just throwing, you know, jargon at them. Yeah. So what what I explain is we're using the attack of tigers with AIDS. People just run. (laughs) I always run to tigers with AIDS too. (laughs) So what I like to include. What I like to include is the magic Hollywood car door that stops all bullets because it's yeah. your superpower and you'll, you'll never have to worry about cover and concealment again. <laughs> but someday, uh, Brian. Someday, somewhere, Brian, some, somebody's going to sneak into the naming convention and somebody's tax up all the uh, Pokemon names for, for their operational titles. Oh, my God. The naming convention for 2020 was canceled because of the COVID. <laughs> <laughs> so you're just going to go on a hack op. Okay. Oh, Brian, uh, okay. tactics. All right. Phase line Kung Flu. Oh, gosh. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I, I had a note here when I saw this one. This is one of the cooler questions on your list, uh, in, in my humble opinion. I'm really glad you asked it. Because as, as the old saying goes, generals are always preparing to fight the last war. You know, I've, I've gone into several battle scenes from my books and realized, oh, crap. This idea of how I had a, it was going to go does not make any sense given what I've shown the rules of that universe to be, what tech people have, and just common sense. And, and that's, you know, that I live in deadly fear of repeating the mistakes of The Last Jedi in that regard. Um, <laughs> so, you know, we're, we're fast running into this today where things like weaponized drones, augmented reality helmets, uh, other automated systems are coming on the scene. And they're going to transform that battlefield in ways that we're only beginning to imagine uh, the space army, for example, may find that they need to add a dedicated drone pilot to their fire team formation. Some guys, his whole job is to ruck around with uh, a pack of drones and then pilot them uh, while the grenadiers at work, while the riflemen's at work, while the machine gunners at work. Um, and, and they may, uh, they're going to, as Rick said, and, and this is something that features in my books, uh, jamming is going to be an issue. Well, you may have laser links uh, for at least a short range operation of them. Uh, so there'll be uh, measures and countermeasures and counter countermeasures uh, to, to make things work. Um, somebody will, will always be trying to outthink the, the next step on things. Uh, Space Navy formations might, they might fly in formations that look something like out of uh, Starfleet battles. Uh, which I know Nick is familiar with. Uh, yeah, yeah, echelons with different <laughs> defenses. I mean, we have uh, that sort of thing to a degree in the Navy already. 
but this would have to be uh, a three-dimensional uh, battle space that they have to deal with. Um, I would caution uh, riders, be careful in trying to get your readers to work, to think too three-dimensionally. It gets confusing really fast. Uh, it's, it's hard to conceptualize that way, but if you can do it, do it. Um, you know, that, that speaking of, of drones, uh, the other day I saw a video of a guy, logistics, logistics was my next point. The logistics of combat is going to vastly change. And, and I know that that doesn't necessarily sound like the sexiest thing, uh, around. Um, but, uh, if you think about it, tactics is only the final step of logistics and the delivery of the bullet to the enemy in a way that is not to the enemy's advantage. Um, the other day I saw a video of a guy getting a pizza delivered to him in a high rise apartment by a drone. And that's a great way to get ammo to, to a ground warrior. Uh, if that, if, as long as you don't have jamming gumming it up, uh, if your ship's engines need uh, a reaction mass to push off of, then things like, things like superheated water, you have to ask the question of, well, you know, how efficient are my engines? How am I going to fuel them uh, to, to give them this reaction mass? Where are the tankers going to be pre-positioned? Can I haul them with me? How much change in velocity, or what's called delta V, is your warship even capable of? Is it going to be realistic that it can get from point A to point B in the story in X amount of time to keep things interesting? Or do I have to uh, build in uh, into the plot a gap of time, unless I want to suspend disbelief or just hand the wave the hand on things. Uh, These, these are things that someone without a near magical drive do have to deal with if they want to tackle such questions. It's not required. You you don't have to deal with this stuff, but if you're wanting to go that extra mile and, uh, and show that you've thought through those sorts of things, then, then these are the sorts of issues that you have to deal with a great resource is uh, Atomic Rockets, the Project Row.com website, goes into so many. It's, a, it's an online dissertation is what it is. There are literally a million words on that thing. Uh, and and it's, it's very well organized. And you can see what other folks have thought of, what other folks have written about, and some of the ideas that they've come up with. And you can pick and choose uh, what, what works for you. See, one thing I learned when I was at the NCO Academy is if you can't Baffle, uh, dazzle them with brilliance, baffle them with bullshit. So go pure hand wave them. <laughs> there you go. Pure hand wave them. So um, let's skip those two questions. So the definition uh, above spoke about the combative aspect of the genre. So how um, accurate do you think you can be with having your characters react to the violence of war? How much wiggle room do you have given that most people's uh, exposure to violence exists surely uh, purely as it's displayed in Hollywood. And we will go with uh, Rick first. Well, um, real life is stranger than fiction. Sometimes I've, I've been reading lately, a lot, you know, about a lot of different um, real people who reacted in ways that were even more outrageous than Hollywood reactions. So, you, you know, you can, you can include all the whole range of reactions in your, in your fiction. Um, I mean, how the average person reacts to violence is important to know and to include in the book, but most of us aren't writing about average people. I mean, you know, Audie Murphy, John Bassalone, Shukart and Gordon, David Bellavia, none of them reacted to violence the way I would, or the average guy on the street would, but that's the source of inspiration for great military SF characters is the guys who react to it by rising to the occasion and being calm and mowing down the enemy. So, you know, you can you can get away with having a little Hollywood in it as long as you show the 
the real people next to them to show why they're special. All right. Uh, Walt. Oh, dear Lord. Um, one of the things I think that gets overlooked a lot, and uh, um, there was a some book, I don't know, The Reservist or some crap like that. Um, it, it, that author dealt with uh, uh, sort of the, the aftermath of that in the beginning of the book, how um, intense battles uh, can affect you over a period of time. Um, and I think that gets lost a lot because a lot of times you see in these books that uh, um, the uh, the people who are doing the fighting are so rah, rah, let's let's space marine. Oh, I'm going to step on zero gravity and this is going to watch watch what my rifle does, Rawr! you know, and you get a lot of that. But at the same time, uh, what about that? that uh, that PFC that went out and bought his space Trans Am as a way to deal with the fact that he saw his squad leader commit a war crime. You know, what what about the uh, um, the uh, guy who was supposed to be covering the combat camera with them uh, and saw this guy's head turn into uh, nothing but uh, a series of pink mist? Um, you, you have to you have to try and gauge your audience. I mean, if you have <laughs> what's that? <laughs> Oh, I'm sorry, uh, but you have to kind of gauge gauge your audience and 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 what you're trying to portray to them, uh, because, I mean, if you're if you're just doing something like like uh, you know Star Wars or Star Trek or something like that, where it's like a little puff of smoke and the guy falls down, that's you know that's one thing. But if you're doing stuff like um, like Rick was talking about, you know, a four thousand meter per second tungsten spike traveling uh, magnetically that basically ignores cover um what that does to the human body is is horrific and terrible and really should be talked about because um otherwise you're not going to get the effect of the weapon you might as well be using just blasters and and so forth and so on so um i, I think that uh, uh the one of the important things that we can kind of look at especially with such a a growing veteran population in the United States is uh, dealing with the cost uh, of this level of violence, uh, especially if the violence is is repeated over and over and over again um, through intense conflict uh, that we're writing about. All right. And I think when the next generation of authors starts to include the Space Trans Am, we will know where it started. Um, but that's <laughs> Wow. All right. So we just created a thing. Scott Bartlett, how much uh, wiggle room do you have with the expectation of people that never saw violence other than the Hollywood-esque and the real the reality that of, of war? It's a question of how like, visceral or gritty we can write it. I mean, Hollywood already doesn't place much limitations on that, so the sky is probably the limit there. Uh, in terms of, like, I guess it's like what Walt said, what your audience toler tolerance is for th those kind of details. In terms of authenticity, uh, I think we're also probably well served to, to include a, a realistic spectrum in there. You know, some people are going to just fall to pieces. Others are going to fall back on their training and react automatically and process it later. And others are, are going to be extremely shaky, but are going to stick with it and get the job done and get them through it. So, yeah, I, I think uh, that's sort of the beauty of writing books and, and the written word. I, I think we can go into more detail and also, also content wise, uh, as far as I'm concerned, there are no limitations. 
So I guess the the impetus for that question was I remember when I was writing my first series for Tim Taylor, the, the Sleepy Legion series, in my first round of edits, I included a scene of uh, a space version of something that had actually happened to me. And he sent it back the edit. That's too fantastical. It would never happen. And even if it did, no one would ever believe it. <laughs> and so it got me thinking that, you know, sometimes what was and what people believe don't always mash up. Like, you know, you see that the, the iconic, the bullet hits the helmet and it doesn't go and he takes it off and the next round finds his skull, that kind of stuff. I mean, that's based on real events. And sometimes that doesn't translate for for the uninitiated. On a long enough timeline. Yeah. So, all right, Nick. As the as the only actor in the uh, residence, I would say um, if you're going to do it, embrace it. And what we were served a large diet of before all of us geniuses came along was the sort of platoon story. Um, I went off to war, and it was bad, and I learned my lesson that it sucks, and I'm sad, and that's just not the truth. And I don't think that's most people's truth, but I don't know. Everybody has their own truth, but here, here's the reality of it. Some people don't like it. Some people don't mind it. And some people love it. And you have to, you have to look at the end game of what your story is and what you're writing. We are not here writing highfalutin lavender and croquet novels about the esoteric nature of war and what it does to people and things like that. You can put that stuff in. And I think it's, I think it's a spice, but I don't think it's a full blown flavor. And I don't think it's a protein in the meal because what we write here and what we have to be very honest about as Indies is we are pulp fiction writers. And we, the people who want to read these books, they see the spaceship getting blown up or they see the Marines engaging the ant people or whatever it is. And they're like, that's going to be war and combat. And I want to read that for some reason. What we found with Galaxy's Edge is that some people were reading it and it was helping with their PTSD. And it was, you know, because there was the camaraderie and the brotherhood and things like that. And that that gave them a sense of of being able to deal with their problems. They find the same thing in video games now. They find that some people who sit down and play Call of Duty, as ridiculous as that is, it, it, it kind of helps them through stuff doesn't work for everybody but i would say the first duty that we have as writers because we are now not soldiers we're writers the first duty that we have is always to entertain and the moment that you start getting heavy about things or blah 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 you know you're taking a chance of of really dragging the story down um to a place that maybe a portion of the audience can't understand or that a portion of the audience doesn't want to go to. So it would be very careful with that flavoring. But as far as the ultra violence and the sort of what weapons do in the 4,000 uh, feet per second tungsten round and everything like that, hell yeah, you should get into that. Um, in a certain way, we are inspiring tomorrow's wars. And the only way that if you ever want to get to that mythical, hey, there's there's peace and there's no more war, or if you want to cut down on war, is help the guys who are figuring out tomorrow's war to make it as violent and as angry and as yucky and as awful as possible so that no one wants to do it. And the only way to do that is to really dream up some jacked up stuff. 
Another dark and twisted answer. All right, Brian, you get to bring up the rear on that one. Oh, man, how do I top you guys? <laughs> Don't. <laughs> you guys have have it absolutely down. You hit the nails on the head. Um, I suppose if I were to say anything here, it is it is to try to make things as believable as possible. And as somebody pointed out, the reality, I think the reality of it may be completely unbelievable to those who aren't uh, experienced in it. Um, retired Lieutenant Colonel David Grossman wrote on combat and on killing. I've, I've read on combat. Some of the stories out of that are just incredible. I would not have believed this one if you told it to me. A guy, because of his training, he was a police officer, and he would show people in training how to disarm their, their weapon, and then he would always hand it back to them. Well, he gets out on the beat, and he's somebody pulls a gun on him. What does he do? He disarms the guy, hands the weapon back to him. True story. Fortunately, yeah, that was a New Jersey state trooper. <laughs> what was that? That was a New Jersey state trooper. Yeah, it was a New Jersey state trooper who was uh, uh, practiced in a certain martial art, and they would they would give their weapon back to continue the training over and over and over again. So, yeah, yeah, yep. that actually happened. Yep, it, and you know, it, all I could say on this is. Please try not to insult the intelligence of the readers. That's, in my book, one of the, the deadly sins of big-name sci-fi right now. Um, a couple of big franchises who shall rename, uh, remain unnamed, but who's... Uh, Galaxy's Edge. No. <laughs> That's Jason. No, it's probably me. I was the guy who wrote the burger chapter. <laughs> Uh, the franchises might have the name, the word star in their names. Uh, <laughs> oh my gosh. But go ahead, Rick. I said, they, and that franchise might've stolen the term galaxy's edge. Yeah. Right. Right. And, um, if the lawyers are listening, send your mail to Brian Mansour at Brian and not me, please. Oh my goodness! Uh, wow, you guys are unreal. I mean, I, I can tell you, I, I struggle this. With, I'm struggling this with this right now in writing the third book. You know, the, these characters have a history of seeing so much crap, and I'm thinking to myself, you know, in reality, these people would be some of these people would be barely barely functional adults. So, you know, at the very least, I've got to make some passing reference to the fact that this guy's now an alcoholic. That this person over here is having flashbacks on a regular basis um that this person over here is uh, the, the temper is starting to show through and this person's also getting kind of mean and you know, used to be the nice guy people uh to cope will go out and buy that trans am people to, to cope will end up becoming uh promiscuous or they'll end up becoming very frigid um that, that book on combat goes through so many different things. Uh, people will regularly piss or poop their pants in the middle of combat. That is a, a, the reality of combat. At least a quarter of, of people in it are going to experience it, at least historically. And the rest of them, uh, uh, as they said, the rest of them are just lying about it. They would have a tactical crap before uh, they would go out on a mission. That, that is standard operating procedure for some units. Uh, all the, so many things that I just uh, I'm not infantry. Uh, I may be an infantry unit, but I'm a medical service corps. So I didn't get that benefit of, of a lot of that training uh, that a lot of the other folks here on the panel have. 
but uh, the, the simple fact is that you can learn uh, much of this just by going out and doing some of the research and talking with the subject matter experts uh, like the folks here. And uh, uh, that will uh, certainly go a long way in, uh, in many people's books to lending that flavor of authenticity that I know most of us crave. We still want to be entertained, but please do it intelligently. And when you go and interview those uh, subject matter experts and they want to sell you their used space transam, don't buy it. It's been rode hard and put away wet. But uh, so speaking of the weapons of war, how do you balance reader expectations for what they expect to see in the genre with the need to fit in the rule of cool? Because if it's not cool, why are we doing it? Uh, and we will start with Scott Bartlett this time. So for me, I think those two things go hand in hand. Uh, typically, that's the, the reason I'm introducing a weapon into the uh, like laser, you know, laser warheads. It's uh, it's in there because it's cool. But uh, well, I shouldn't limit it to just that. I mean, it's also in there because it has a tactical application, like in my universe, uh, or one of them anyway. Uh, there are shields, and shields are weak against lasers. So that's like the rock, paper, scissors of, the, of that universe. But hulls are weak against missiles. So what we want are missiles that are going to take down the shields or weaken them so that our missiles can punch through. And... Uh, that's an innovation that came along in book two. And it was, of course, a curveball first thrown at the good guys or the protagonists of the series. And they needed to have that immediately. And then by book three, they had implemented it in their force because it was effective and also cool, but probably not how they're thinking about it. Okay. And uh, Nick? What was the question one more time? How do you balance the reader expectations for the genre, weapons, et cetera, with the rule of cool? You know, um, I always try to exceed expectations. And what I try to do is, like I said, you know, the weapon porn is always going to be super important. So, you know, not just getting fantastic about, you know, making up ridiculous weapons, but sometimes sort of either retro engineering interesting systems or, you know, taking existing weapon systems and advanced engineering them. Um, in the Savage Wars, I was, you know, there's been a lot of talk about the 6.5 millimeter round coming out to the military now. A lot of people um, are really excited about that. There was a guy who went and basically built his own weapon system and he marketed it to the army and he made it into the top three. I think his weapon system is cool. I don't know if it's going to work, but basically it's a ribbon gun that shoots five rounds at once at the same time in six put 6.5. And it does use the electromagnetic barrel. Cool. So it's a, it's a little, de it's a little delicate, but it's a devastating weapon. And so I, I took that and ran with it because it was interesting. And there was enough like, cool words for me to rip off from the guy's paper and sound like <laughs> I actually know what I'm talking about, which is the important thing about, uh, about being a writer, which is basically what you said, JR, when you, what you learn in PLDC, which is, you know, if you, if you can't, I forget the first part, but I really embrace the second part, then just dazzle them with bullshit. Outstanding. Baff baffle, them. baffle them with bullshit. If you can't dazzle them with brilliance, baffle them with bullshit. All right, Brian. You have to bring up the middle again. <laughs> the dog agrees with you. 
So, so uh, the question was, what is the difference between realistic military technology and stuff uh, added just because it fits the rules cool? And, and where does like mechs fit into this? Matt, I got the right question. Uh, no, the question is, how do you balance reader expectations with the, the need to put in the rule of cool just because it's cool? Okay. Um, but you can answer that other question, too. That sounded smart. <laughs> <laughs> I was just thinking, I saw a rule of cool in there. I, I had to be looking at the wrong. Uh, balancing expectations. All right. Um, yeah, we touched we touched on that a little bit before. Uh, blasters, they're, they're fantastic for storytelling. I love them. Uh, they just... Uh, I, I don't know how to make one. Uh, so for me, it's not something that, that, uh, I want and start you know to make when you'd be rich. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> Shoot. I'd be the first one in line, uh, to, uh, to buy one if somebody did. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I, there, there is a lot out there that is if not already out on the market is at least plausible near future or even, even fairly long, uh, range that you can put into your story. And there is so much rule of cool in that weapon system of itself. Um, one, one thing that uh, I read about a little while ago was smart bullets. And this really, we saw this uh, Genesis, I believe back in the 1980s Tom Selleck movie runaway where yeah. the, the guy shoots and it just goes and seeks the target. And I thought to myself, that would be a fantastic sniper weapon. Let's have an entire group of uh, snipers called Overwatch. They're kind of special forces snipers, ranger types. And their whole job is to sit on uh, at a great distance at a, in a hub in a centrifugal uh, colony. And their job is to go rain hell upon the enemy trying to uh, cross the battlefield from literally tens of kilometers away. But they're going to hit their target every stinking time because the computer systems involved can steer that drone bullet for the five or six, seven seconds that it's going to take to reach target. And then, you know, those poor guys, they're just not going to have a very good day. And for all the counterfire, you're going to have a whole bunch of Claymore type mines uh, on the other side. And you get all these wonderful explosions and you get all the pew pew and you get all the bodies dropping left and right. I mean, that's awesome. You know, this, this is uh, the, what they call it, the wet dream of, uh, of the soldier. Uh, all this wonderful stuff. So, it's too bad. It's too bad that you didn't call the Overwatch sniper guys the Kiss Army, because the sniper in the Tom Selleck movie was Gene Simmons. It was. <laughs> it was Gene awesome Simmons. Was that a bit? Oh my goodness! And uh, Kirstie Alley was in it, so there should have been some sort of a cheering uh, reference. Oh, bat, off off the heels of Lieutenant Savicom. Ah. Yep. Yeah. Ah. They yeah. changed Lieutenant Savick from two to three. It really ticked me off. Yeah, they did. Sounds like you guys are all going to need a moment in your bunk while you uh, reminisce. But uh, Rick, <laughs> you get to you get to go next. Well, um, in the original question, you mentioned mech, and you know I love mech. I love mechs. They're really cool, uh, just fun things to write and read and watch, play video games with. But they're incredibly unrealistic. They're nothing but huge walking targets. And yet people will buy lots of books about mechs, as I, as I know full well. I wrote a whole series for them. And you know, people will forgive a lot, you know, if the tech is, is cool. I mean, the audience expectations is to some extent that the tech's going to be cool. Now, I, I have kind of, I'm kind of, 
OCD about realist, somewhat being realistic in my tech. So I had to come up with a reason why mechs actually existed in the series I wrote and why they, they were still you know, used in the military, despite the fact that they're horrible, horrible ideas. But, you know, people want to read books about mechs. Battletech lasted for, is still going on. It's been going on for decades because people love giant walking tanks. So rule of cool goes a long way. All right, Walt. Uh, I'm, I'm kind of going to go uh, a slight branch from what Rick was saying and just say that keep it consistent. Um, if your cool thing is not consistent with your universe, then um, you're, you're probably going to lose some people. Last Jedi, that's all I got. <laughs> <laughs> not to throw shade or anything. Well, you know, all right. I, I was I was such a big fan of that lightspeed maneuver. <laughs> you mean you mean the the whole row maneuver? <laughs> no, we don't call it that in this house. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So speaking of those. Use automatic weapons and grenades in book two, unicorn powered Gundam suits. <laughs> <laughs> I think you've got your next big hit. <laughs> it will be so, three. <laughs> I don't know how you topped that for book three, but but you've got your work cut out for you. So speaking of those details. Uh, in book three, in book three, you go back and say that the unicorn powered Gundam suits didn't actually happen. <laughs> so what level of detail do you think readers of military science fiction want? Do we have to get to the point where we have full technical specs of our spaceships? In which case, call Elon Musk. I believe he'll get a job for you. Uh, and weapon system? Or can you just wave your hand and, and call it blasters and say pew pew? Um, Scott? I think a certain amount of that detail can be fun to read, and readers definitely enjoy it. But uh, like Nick said earlier, I mean, we have to keep the, the story moving. And uh, if we get too bogged down in like either the, the technical details or the deeper meaning of it all, then we're kind of getting away from the, the main purpose of these stories, which is to entertain people. All right. And I'm going to jump around for this one. Rick, you get to go next. I think the key word is verisimilitude. You don't have to have full technical specs, but throwing out a few details here and there will make it sound as if what you're talking about is real. It, you don't have, it doesn't have to be real or even realistic, but if you make it sound as if somebody actually built this and give people the impression that it's a real thing to the characters and not some fantasy technology, it's something that, that they live with every day and work on and, and they know how it works. And I think that that's enough to, uh, to keep the reader satisfied. All right. And then because we're going to jump around, uh, we're going to go with Nick Cole next. Um, I would say that uh, details are fun and everything like that, but you just you want to keep it fresh and interesting and you don't want to over explain or anything like that. Uh, it's, it's pretty simple. You just like you've always got to serve the reader, you know, the story and make sure that that they're just there, you know, you got to keep them in there and make sure that they're having a good time. And it's a, it's a tightrope, but, uh, you know, there's a certain, a certain amount of people who just really like the, the details and they think it's awesome. And then there's a certain amount of people who are like, okay, we've covered that, you know, move on to the story. And I think something that is, is sort of like, you know, 
you got to bring in the human story and you got to bring in the struggle and not everybody in the unit gets along. You've got to get into the interpersonal dynamics and, you know, space trans am and everything like that. And at the end of the day, um, you basically have to paint a good picture of brothers, you know, in combat doing badass stuff. And, uh, that's it. And no matter what you do and no matter how good you get it, um, some guy who plays a lot of airsoft will tell you how you got it wrong. Oh yeah. <laughs> so, so what I'm hearing is the, uh, the Nick Cole rule is just don't be boring and everything else is okay. Boring is the most unforgivable sin. Mm-hmm. Boring is the unforgivable sin for being a writer. You will go to hell. Yeah. Um, you know, <laughs> the hell of, it's the hell of just bad rankings and, and sorry, you didn't make it. Like, you know, I mean, uh, th- listen, when you look at the space Marine rankings, not everybody is Jason and I, and there's some people writing some stuff that rank pretty hard. And the stuff that they're writing is utter military garbage. One guy doesn't even like the military. And, you know, and they're, they're not even getting it vaguely right. So, I mean, you know, yeah, you know, try to get it right and try to do well and everything like that. But what those two guys are doing is they're entertaining really well. And that, that entertaining really well can overcome a lot of problems. Okay. And, uh, Brian, because we didn't want you to think we forgot you. <laughs> now, those are, those are words to live by. Uh, I I think just about every time I'm writing a sentence, I hear Nick Cole's voice in my head saying, uh, you can, you can say anything except be boring. Um, for, for my own books, I'll have a paragraph or two where I, I just take a moment to describe what's going on in that detail, you know? So something like the two meter diameter optics of each turret concentrated the rays onto a, a five centimeter wide laser point. And that's it. It's, it, you're, there's no point in overloading uh, with a whole bunch of numbers. And my take on it is if I'm boring myself after I do the reread uh, several weeks later, then that I may have spent a whole day trying to write that two paragraph little segment. If I'm bored by it, it's gone. The idea is the, the end goal is always, is this entertaining? Does this add value to somebody to a, at least a, a good segment of your audience? Um, does it serve that rule of cool to know, oh, okay, yeah, there's just some hard numbers. Ooh, that sounds impressive. And that's going to vary from person to person. You're not going to please everybody. There are going to be some people who says, why did you put a freaking number in here? You interrupted the flow of things. The other one, another one will say, oh, that was so awesome that you put in, put that in there. I loved it. Give me more. Um, it, it, all you can do is, is pick uh, which segment of your audience you want to serve and do your best on the sniff test. Am I having fun with this? Yes, it stays. Is making me yawn? It goes. All right, Walt, I'm going to let you be the contrary now since you're, you're bringing up the rear. Oh, God, I hate it in the rear. Um, <laughs> uh, um, yeah, there's not a whole lot you can add to that. I mean, you just you just really want to be um, – uh, I, I look at it just like uh, when we were mobilizing to go to anywhere we went, like when I when – I, the last time I deployed, uh, you know, I was the fossil. So there was a whole bunch of new stuff to learn. And one of them was uh, this uh, this massive jamming system that was coming onto the battlefield at the time. Uh, and they went into all the technical specs and blah, 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 blah. Right. And then um, 
fast forward, we're in the middle of the dirt. It's 132 degrees out. You're wearing 65 pounds of armor. You're out of water. And then you get saddled with the, the guy that's going to be um, documenting everything for for um, some army magazine or some Marine Corps gazette thing. And then he sits there and he says, oh, what's that? And you use a one word answer. And then you say this jam stuff so we don't get blowed up on the road. You know, I mean, that, that that's really how it is. You, you know, in training, you might get all this gobbledygook. But at the end of the day, the, the end users, the guys that are doing the pew pew and smashing their foot down on the accelerator, these guys are just going to say, it jam shit shoot that way, you know, and that's, and I mean, that's, for me, that's the difference of, uh, like, uh, like Brian was saying earlier, why'd you put that number in there? It slowed down the action, you know, because I mean, to say that he was shooting a, a, a 50 caliber or, you know, he was, he was rocking a 25 millimeter chain gun or something like that. That's okay. But to have a, a you know, to stop the action, to talk about, um, the, uh, the amount of gigajoules of energy necessary to blanket an entire field in electromagnetic crap to short out things that are not on the same frequency hops that as you, it just, I don't know. It just, you're going to lose your reader. It, it, if I, if I can to that, it's, it's like that sniper elite scene, you know, where they, they do the slow-mo cam that's a trope. That's a way of storytelling and it doesn't work for everybody. And it's the meat and potatoes for other readers. It all just depends upon your audience. And if it's dragging your, your reviews down, then by golly, change tactics and, and cut that sort of crap. A lot of mill SF readers want that kind of detail though. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I want it. I love it, but not too much of it. Speaking of details, <laughs> uh, this is Walt's question. So he does get to answer it first. How do you balance huh? the level of de- how do you balance the level of detail for the daily life of the average soldier? So we're talking MREs, late pay, cheating wives, at all, um, and fit that into your story for that versimil that word. Versimilitude. Yeah, that that's what I was trying to say. Uh, well, you get to go oh. first since it was your question. I can't answer that until you say that word correctly. We'll wait. <laughs> I could spell it in my books with subject. <laughs> um, I think what Nick Nick was talking about earlier is is cool, and if uh, I don't know if it came through or not, because I'm having some weird issues with my internet, but um, um, I put a uh, in the chat. I put the picture of a space Trans Am, um, but. Uh, <laughs> I, I think if you if you if you salt and pepper that in to show that these soldiers have real lives um, outside of this, um, like uh, Nick was talking about, you know, he's he's on his second DUI. You know, his wife is busting him for child support. Uh, but none of that matters right now because he's been laying in the prone for the last three days, pooping into a bag and waiting for that one guy to come in so he can rain down a laser so a high-powered combat jet can drop a 500-pound bomb on the structure. You know, I mean, even if you're sitting there, like, on target and waiting for stuff, you know, you and your spotter or you and and the people in your your crew, you're going to talk about some of these issues about, hey, man, um, I just noticed my my girl raided my, my, uh, my bank account, and I think she's going off with so and so. Oh man, that sucks. Hey, we'll, we'll talk later. Guns up, eyes out. You know, I mean, there has to be some of that because, um, I mean, it's it's kind of what you see in the real in the real world. All right, Scott. 
There's definitely a balance to be struck there because like Walt said, if you put in too much of it, it can start to detract from the story, which and ultimately in this genre, it's about war. Uh, one way that I, I try to sort of weave it in in a way that doesn't detract too much is I make those details part of a character's motivation. For example, in a series that I'm writing now, uh, we've colonized the other side of the galaxy using a wormhole and aliens attack. And of course, the wormhole collapses. So the main character is separated from his pregnant wife and part of his motivation for uh, getting things together on this side of the galaxy and, and unifying people and, and sort of beating the bad guys is getting back to Earth and defeating the aliens and hopefully reuniting with his wife. Okay, good answer. All right, Brian. So it, it's ultimately these are human stories, so you have to have some sort of detail in there, I feel, uh, to make it believable. It may be a bookend to the story, uh, the the, uh, the Warriors up in the late night with uh, his daughter who's had a nightmare. Um, there's a, a, a neat little reception party at the end of the story, or you have, uh, you know, sprinkled in there. They're having a, a minute or two to eat their MREs. And, and Nick Cole, I promise you, in your honor, in, in my third book, I will somehow have a donut in an MRE. Um, yeah. It will be there. I will find a way. Uh, I would I would fight harder for a donut. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the real question though is, what would you do for a Klondike bar? <laughs> it would have to, it would have to be a dehydrated donut. You have to have water. <laughs> yes, but uh, it, all that all that stuff is it's there in the back of our minds as as real soldiers and sailors and marines and, and airmen and even coast guardmen, uh, if that's a thing. Uh, it, it you know we're our thoughts go back to you know is my is my wife okay did she remember to move the money over to this other account to pay things uh, did uh, did my kid do well in in the last round of exams all that stuff is is going to be somewhere in there the question is you know how much detail are you going to add in there it it needs to add value it needs to uh, somehow help push the story along if possible or at the very least to round out the character. Um, to, to show that that person is a human being, uh, to show that that person, uh, you know, does actually fart and, and put um, his uh, pants on one leg at a time, unless, of course, they're uh, so far in the future that they they jump onto you and wrap themselves around you. Um, you know, it, it, like with everything else, like with uh, the numbers in combat, judicious. Ask that question, is it getting boring at this point? Is this what I came to the party for? That's my All point. right. Uh, Rick. Oh, um, I don't tend to throw in too many uh, wives and children just because of the nature of the military science fiction I write. Um, but I do try to throw in, you know, some personal details. A lot of what I write involves more of people who are almost a foreign legion type of deal where they are they're they're in the military because they don't have any choice or they're in the situation they're at in the military because they don't have any choice. But I, I throw in, you know, enough family details just to make them seem like real people. But um, I have brought up food quite a few times. 
the people, the military is obsessed with food, so you have to, you have to bring that up. Okay. As donuts, no invitation. <laughs> well, I mean, every, everybody always complains about the food, so that has to be part of it. Fair enough. And uh, since I knew you were going to make us all laugh, and it would be hard to follow you, Nick, you get to be last. One time I was doing some training and I think it was an OCS and it was brutal. And the biggest guy in the unit, we were like, we were at the ragged edge. Like that's what they do. They try to get you into this weird spot where, you know, you're an officer. Now you're not an enlisted guy. Both those groups have different focuses, not saying one is more professional than the other, but the enlisted guys have a lot of more common sense, practical survival thinking and sort of like, you know, uh, interpersonal dynamics are big, big with them. Um, with the officers, you're actually trained not to have any of that. And it's kind of why they end up getting hated so much is because they don't seem like real people. Because they're really actually conditioned and trained, whether it's ring knockers or ROTC or my experience, which is OCS, you are trained not to become that person. You're trained not to be a people anymore. You're trained to be very mission-oriented, focused. You, you know, everybody thinks you're trying to impress the battalion commander. You're the guy that's got to deliver the bad news that, you know, you're going to do a 20-mile hump tonight. And the, they want it done in mob gear just for giggles or, you know, whatever, whatever game that you're playing, you are the bearer of bad messenger, bad, bad news, and everybody hates your guts and you know it. And so you have a tendency to devolve into this fine. I hate you all back even harder. And I'm going to please the battalion commander and I'm going to concentrate on my family and the six figure job I'm going to get when I get out of here. But you really are concerned about everybody. And you really do want to do a good job. And the enlisted guys are the same way, too. A lot of them want to go off to college. They want to do whatever. It's, you know, it's not everybody's military experience is the same. I think if you get over the Navy and stuff like that, you've got the bridge officers. And, you know, I guess they're, you know, all thinking about high tea and what outfit to wear. And then you got, like, the technicians down in the, in, in the, in the bottom. And those guys are probably all, like, very like mechanic-y. you know, they're the kind of guys that probably, um, you know, get their deer every year and build, you know, the, you know, restore cars. So it's just, there's different reasons why different people serve. And you have to figure out from whose perspective are you writing from? Who are you advocating in this whole thing? But I remember going back to OCS one time in that really hard, hard moment. And we woke up and it was just going to be another endless stupid day of all of that kind of stuff. And the biggest, most hardcore infantry guy there just got up and started singing the Folgers coffee cup song in his head out loud at the top of his lungs. And, you know, the, the, the DIs uh, and, and the TAC officers just swarmed him and he couldn't stop because he, he, he needed coffee and we weren't allowed to have coffee and all that kind of stuff. So it just it's those textures that like bubble out whether you want to have them or not. it's not the mission, it's not the war, it's not any of those things, but there are these textures about each person in this unit involved in this conflict, and they're there for a reason. Some guys got their girlfriend pregnant, and they signed up. Some guys thought, oh, I know how I'll pay for college, I'll do this. And some guys thought, you know what I want to do? I want a Call of Duty for the MAGA win and do it for real. And those, you know, like, everybody joined for a reason and they're not always the actual I, I don't think any of them are right reasons 
but there's textures in all of those people. And so you can't tell a novel that's just combat, combat, you know, now I feel bad about combat. Ah, oh, the aliens are winning combat, combat, combat. Oh no, all this kind of stuff. You've got to bring in these moments of just like texture where, you know, like in the movies, when they write scripts, a game that screenwriters will play is they will try to do everything they can in the scene, but talk about what the scene is actually about, but then still give you the information in the scene. So in Pulp Fiction, we get two hitmen on their way to a hit talking about a Royale with cheese, talking about hamburgers. We know the reason that's such a great scene is we know these two guys now through that whole bit of dialogue. We figure out one guy's a world traveler and the other guy has a girlfriend who's vegan and he would love to have a burger. They don't talk about, okay, now when we go in, uh, you're going to, you're going to do perimeter security and I'm going to make the hit. And then this is the way we're going to exfil off the objective. That's what we would really talk about in the military and things like that. But what if we said, no, let's turn it into Pulp Fiction. Let's be inventive and wacky without being overindulgent and, and create these characters. And I actually find like, when I take a group of guys and I start writing about them and I force them to do stuff like that, they, they become more alive characters than I ever intended them to be. And they'll say some like ridiculous stuff. And, and now as you go through the editing process and you begin to write it, they really come forward. They really have a voice. And then you've said so much of their ridiculous personal texture that when you get to that big moment where they have to make that choice of say like, you know, I'm going to charge the machine gun nest or, you know, I'm going to go ahead and flank. You're totally justified in why that guy does it. And you even now know why he would do it or what he would actually do in the scenario you're presenting to your protagonist. And that's I think that's where the voodoo fun comes in. All right. Well, I just looked at the time and uh, Walt told me his boss is going to get really, really mad if he just doesn't go. So we are going to have to wrap this up without having gotten to all the fun questions. But uh, if you want to show the listener, dear listener, if you want to show the authors in question how you how much you appreciate them, what you need to do is go to their Amazon page and click the buy all button. They will really, really appreciate that. That's how you ring their bell and say, hey, did a great job. But as we wrap this up, we're going to start with you, Walt, because I know you have to go. How can listeners find you? Uh, hazardstudio.net. Everything that you need to find is right there. All right. All right. Uh, sorry about that abrupt end, dear listener. We had a lot of questions, and I didn't count on the uh, amount of shenanigans that Nick and Brian and Walt and Rick and Scott and all these fine, fine folks would get up to. So it was a little bit uh, a learning curve for me. This is one of the few first panels that we've done. And uh, so I apologize, but uh, Walt had to bounce. And so now we're going to go back through alphabetic order, how you could find everybody else. So Scott, can you tell uh, listeners how they can find you? Sure. Like you said, Jerry, the Amazon page is great. Uh, Scottplots.com for three free military sci-fi eBooks. And I, and I now have a, a Facebook group that people can uh, look up Scott Bartlett Spacer. So feel free to join that. Outstanding. And then next, but not least in our heart, Nick. Uh, the best way to find me is to go ahead and open an MRE packet and take out the creamer and the creamer and uh, draw a summoning circle on the ground. Place a donut and a cup of coffee in there and I'll probably appear and ruin your life. But having <laughs> not wishing to have that happen to you, go ahead and go over to galacticoutlaws.com. 
and buy all the audiobooks for Galaxy's Edge, and you will have a lot of fun. Uh, buy the Tyrus Rex series if you like The Mandalorian. It's basically that, but better and first. And uh, I just want to thank everybody for hanging out with us. And I want to thank my fellow authors. You guys are awesome. The things that you say today inspired uh, me. And by the word inspired, I mean, I'm going to rip you off. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Brian, how can listeners find you? Okay. Well, obviously, I'm, I'm on uh, Amazon and Audible. Uh, Facebook is where I haunt the most. Uh, I don't have any use for Twitter or uh, Instagram yet in life. Goodreads is uh, the devil. And uh, my website is uh, very simply uh, brianmanser.wordpress.com. That's B-R-I-A-N-M-A-N-S as in Sam, U-R.wordpress.com. All right. And as usual, dear listener, the links will all be in the show notes. And again, if you want to show your appreciation, go to the Amazon page, click that buy button. It's like ringing a bell that says, hey, they did a great job, sort of uh, a way to give an angel its wings. Well, in this case, you give an author his unicorn. So uh, wrapping this up, I was getting ready to do that, but I was trying to tell him to buy your stuff. I mean, you buy everybody else's stuff but Rick's, apparently. He does not want you to buy his stuff. Okay, and you can find us, dear listener, on our website, www.sfshenanigans.com. Our Twitter is at SFS underscore show, Sierra Foxtrot Sierra underscore show. You can email us at podcast at sfshenanigans.com, or you can find us on our Facebook group, which is facebook.com backslash groups backslash sfshenanigans. And if I butchered any pronunciation or was as clear as mud, all links will be in the show notes. And that's a wrap. Thank you for spending some of your precious time with us. For Chris Winder and Saskia Smalls, I'm J.R. Hanley, and this was the Sci-Fi Shenanigans Podcast. We'll be back next week at the same time where we'll indulge our love of space and all things that go boom. All right. Thank you for sticking with us through that uh, archived episode that was in the uh, in the digital memory hole that we found. We thought you'd enjoy it. So thank you for spending some of your precious time with us. For Nick Garber and Doc Seska, I am J.R. Hanley, and this was the archive for the Blasters and Blades podcast. We'll be back at our regular scheduled time where we'll indulge our love of nerd culture, cheesy jokes, and all things that go boom.